Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking about the hidden curriculum of grad school and how to open that up with our guest, Dr. Jessica Calarco, who wrote A Field Guide to Grad School, Uncovering the Hidden Curriculum. Welcome to the show, Jess. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I wonder if to start off, you would tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm a sociologist at Indiana University. Most of my research, broadly speaking, focuses on systems of inequality, especially schools and uh, families, and how those systems are often designed to give advantages to people with privilege. And I mean, I think certainly that's something, a theme that comes up in A Field Guide to Grad School and also in my first book, Negotiating Opportunities, um, and so it, which focuses more on K-12 education as opposed to graduate school. In terms of myself more generally, I'm a, in addition to a professor and a, and a researcher, a mom of two kids, I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old. And, and on the book front, my first grader is learning about writing books in her class and decided to bring up the fact that her mom had written two books, which led to a conversation recently about uh, how her teacher asked, well, how many uh, how many edits do you think your mom had to make in, in writing her two books? And, and I asked my daughter, well, what did you say in response to that? She said, a really big number. Um, and so I thought that was particularly fitting because really, I mean, writing books are, and any kind of academic writing does involve so much revision. Uh, and it does, um, I think, help all of us to remember that there is such a process that goes into producing any book or any piece of academic writing that it's easy to look at the finished product and say, wow, this looks so polished, or at least I hope my books look pretty polished. Uh but really, the work that goes into making it that way is so many track changes, um, or in my case, oftentimes just throwing out drafts and starting over with a fresh piece of paper. Uh, and my my kids certainly keep me humble uh, on that front. So your six-year-old is learning about school during a pandemic. What was, <laughs> what was your own educational path like? Sure. So I went uh, to public schools for K-12 myself um, and then uh, went to uh, Brown for undergrad, um, where I was a major in sociology and education. Um, and that's really, I think, between um, high school and college, I, I, I didn't know about sociology before I got to college, uh, but I did have some exposure to education and inequality. I was, when I was a, a, a junior in high school, I was our student school board representative. And this was around the time of the No Child Left Behind Act. Um, and we had done a lot of talking about it in government classes at school. And I did some research on it for a project um, and also began thinking about it in the context of the work I was doing with the school board and ended up having the chance to participate in some legislative hearings, uh, be sort of a student, uh, tes- give student testimony to state legislative hearings around policies that were designed to increase accountability in schools. And even as a, as a teenager, sort of recognizing some of the huge inequalities that those accountability measures uh, presented for students, um, given the often unequal resources and opportunities that students have in our schools. And so that was something, those kinds of questions kind of carried me through to to college and left me really interested in understanding, especially how the lens of sociology can help us to make sense of the the, the forces that create inequalities, whether that's in schools or in families or in society more generally. And so after college, well, while I was in college, I worked a bit for the American Federation of Teachers, had an internship there, um, and got to know more about sort of education from, from that perspective, from more of a policy and practical side, um, and then went on to graduate school um, at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, where I did my PhD in sociology. Um, and 
then from there went on to my first and, and current academic job uh, at Indiana University. When did you realize you wanted to be a professor? That's a good question. I mean, I think, so I had the opportunity when I was an, an undergraduate student to work for Professor Carl Kasel, who's an education historian at Brown. Uh, and he took a chance on me, hiring me as an undergrad um, to, to work for him as sort of a um, both a, a, an office assistant and also a research assistant. I got to help do some editing on some of his book manuscripts. I got to go to the archives in Washington, D.C. to do some research for a, a book on the history of the federal role in education. And sort of, and even just like working in his office with him day to day, learning about sort of academic conferences and uh, seeing what professor life looked like from the inside. Um, and so I think having the chance to work with him and having the chance to see what, how professors can have the opportunity to balance research and teaching and activism. Uh, he, he was someone who was very heavily involved with a number of um, organizations related to W.B. Du Bois and sort of uh, supporting uh, scholarship around uh, W.B. Du Bois. Um, and so kind of seeing how he balanced those different parts of his job um, and, and sort of seeing that as a model for myself and what I was hoping for uh, in my own career, um, that was sort of, it kind of sparked the idea of being a professor. It wasn't something I'd ever really considered, um, certainly before my junior or senior year of college. And what led you to want to write the field guide to grad school? You said your first book was K to 12. Um, so you kind of skipped over a book for college <laughs> and went right to the field guide for grad school, which I am really thrilled that you wrote this book. It's, it's everything I wish um, someone had told me. It's the book I wish I had been able to carry around with me, the, you know, from my master's to my PhD, you know, just have it. Well, it's a little heavy to go in my pocket, but um, definitely in my tote bag. Um, but what what led you to think I'm going to do this? I need to do this. Yeah. So I mean, this this book actually started as a Twitter thread. Um, I, I don't know how many books can can say that, but this one did. Um, so back in 2018, uh, PhD student Kristen K. Smith had had tweeted about the need to better educate undergrads about graduate school opportunities. And it made me think about how opportunities in academia are often hidden from grad students uh, as well. And kind of reflecting back at the time on my own experiences in grad school, I, I thought about the many times that I'd found myself feeling embarrassed because of something that I didn't know, not knowing the difference, for example, between a working paper and one that's forthcoming um, and implying that I had a forthcoming paper when really what I was talking about was a working paper um, or not knowing how to do certain statistical procedures that would have saved me huge amounts of time um, in data analysis, like a, a do loop uh, in, in SAS, the, the statistics program I was taught how to use, or even not knowing the meaning of, of key kind of buzzwords that you'd hear in, in, in classrooms. I remember my first year of grad school, people talking about dialectical and having no idea what the word dialect, I'm not even sure that I totally understand what dialectical is at this point. Um, but at the time, like those kinds of words just felt so, uh, they were such a huge catalyst for imposter syndrome. And so I shared some of those stories in this Twitter thread. And I encouraged other scholars to do the same, to, to share stories of times when they felt embarrassed or, or shamed because of something that they didn't know that someone assumed that they should know in grad school. And ultimately, hundreds of scholars ended up sharing their stories with this hidden curriculum hashtag, uh, stories about not knowing that you can get funding for a PhD program or bumbling the names of famous theorists or standing awkwardly in the back of a reception at conferences because you're not sure who to talk to. And so kind of as the, the like the qualitative researcher that I am, I started collecting all those stories in a spreadsheet and kind of grouping them by different themes, the way that I often do with, with a lot of the qualitative research that I do when I'm analyzing interview quotes or excerpts from field notes, things like that. 
And essentially what I had at that point, even though I wasn't really thinking about it that way at the time, was was the outline for a book with, with different themes representing the different chapters uh, that ended up in the final book manuscript. And, and meanwhile, uh, Megan Levinson, who's an editor at Princeton University Press, had seen the hashtag and all of these stories being shared on Twitter. And she reached out to me to ask if I'd be interested in, in turning all those tweets into a book. And at the time, so this was 2019, I, I was uh, 2018, uh, 20, kind of 2018, 2019, I, I was a little hesitant. I had just published my first book in 2018. I had a one-year-old at home and a four-year-old who took up most of my extra energy at the time. And at the same time, though, I'd also already written a number of short blog style pieces that I kind of post on my own website for students, just kind of reflections, oftentimes that I'd prepared for my for my own grad students or undergrads, kind of reflections on writing research papers, kind of outlining research papers, giving effective conference talks, encouraging students to talk in class when you're teaching. And so I figured, at least at the time, well, it can't be that much more work than putting it together a whole bunch of blog posts on these topics. And, and certainly, I was I was wrong on that front. It took me a good bit more time and effort than I probably initially envisioned. Um, but I would say that this kind of writing, kind of writing to teach and writing to support and writing to convey camaraderie and a sense of, of togetherness in a struggle is, is especially rewarding and, and even fun for me. And so I'm really glad that I sort of stuck with it um, and, and had the chance to share this book um, and, and finish putting it all together, even though... Um, that the final editing happened at the very beginning of the pandemic when both my kids were home full time and I was waking up at like four in the morning to finish all the edits. So it was um, not the most, th th there's probably quite a few typos in the book because um, I can't promise that my, my bleary eyed um, early mornings were as, as productive as I would have liked them to be, but I did my best. I did not find any typos. <laughs> Excellent. Feel better. But I, I had um, a great editing team too, so that helps. But. So, if we can um, just out of the gate, start defining things for listeners. When we say the hidden curriculum, what do we mean and why is it hidden? Yeah, so the hidden curriculum really includes all of the knowledge and skills and strategies that students are expected to know in grad school or really at any level of schooling. There, there are hidden curriculums for preschool and, and elementary school and, and et cetera. And, and essentially, it's so all those skills and knowledge and strategies that you're expected to know and that matter for success, but that aren't explicitly taught. And so that could include things like, at the beginning, how to choose a program or how to find effective mentors or how to ask those mentors for help when you're struggling and you're not sure what to do next. It could also include things like how to read effectively and efficiently in grad school or how to write an effective literature review or how to study for qualifying exams or get funding for your research. So essentially, Knowing all of these things can help you be more successful in grad school, or at least to have an easier time making it through. And, and certainly, as your question implied, I mean, that raises the question of why does all of this knowledge stay hidden if it's so important, if, it, if it's part of sort of success in graduate school? And I, I mean, I would argue that one of the reasons that the hidden curriculum of grad school stays hidden is because academia doesn't reward faculty for being the kinds of teachers and mentors who help their students develop key knowledge and skills. I mean, especially if we're talking about PhD programs, all of the big rewards in research universities, the kinds of universities that have PhD programs, they're all attached to research. And at, at those universities, at these research institutions, faculty members, professors are hired and promoted based almost entirely on their research. Professors who do more research and more prestigious research end up with more money, more awards, more opportunities. 
And so what that means is that, that the professors who teach at these universities that have graduate programs have relatively little external incentive, at least, to focus on being good teachers or good mentors. I mean, there's, there's some incentive to be a good teacher at the undergraduate level, especially at schools where department funding is determined by things like undergraduate enrollment. But there's relatively little incentive to, to be a good teacher at the graduate level, and especially in classes for students pursuing PhDs or other graduate doctoral degrees. And so on top of that, most PhD programs, especially at big research universities, actually pay students to get their degrees. And I mean, so while that money is good for students, though it's certainly never enough, it means that PhD students have, have really little leverage to demand the kind of effective teaching and mentoring that they really deserve um, in grad school. And so because of how the rewards, because of this reward structure, professors oftentimes don't have external incentives to be good teachers or good mentors. And oftentimes they're pulled in other directions instead. Their, their incentives tell them to focus as much of their time and energy as possible on research. And what that means when it comes to mentoring is that professors essentially have an incentive to, to pick winners. And, and so that means recruiting and working with and investing in graduate students who seem like they'll be able to succeed in academia with as little support as possible. And so we can think about because of the inequalities that exist in our education system and our society as a whole, the students who come in looking to professors like the ones who will be the sure bets are, are probably going to be students who come in already knowing a good deal of the hidden curriculum of academia or who have people other than their professors that they can rely on for help. And so, and we, and we can think about sort of why why that's likely to be an unequal spread of, of professors. Because essentially, I mean, I, and in that sense, we have to think about the fact that academia, or at least the version of academia that we have today, it is, uh, uh, remains a, a racist and classist and sexist and ableist and anti-immigrant institution in the sense that it was designed by and for wealthy white men and very much remains in its structures geared toward the success of those people uh, over others uh, instead. And so just to give one example of how that plays out, I mean, students from more privileged groups are more likely to have friends and family members who've gone to college and gotten a PhD. And, and those students are going to come to grad school already far more familiar with the hidden curriculum of academia, the, the ways of doing things, the key terminology, the structures of success. I mean, certainly my, my six-year-old knows more about academia than I did when I started college and, and maybe more than I did when I started grad school. So those, those network connections, that informal access to this knowledge can, can, play a huge, can play a huge role for students. And certainly, as I find in some of my K-12 research, on top of just their network connections, students from more privileged backgrounds also tend to feel more entitled to ask for help. And so even if there are parts of the hidden curriculum that they don't know or can't figure out on their own, those students from more privileged backgrounds generally trust faculty enough to ask for help. And that's in large part because of how they've been treated throughout their school careers. They've been given more opportunities in many cases, more respect. And so they feel entitled to more opportunities and more deference. Uh, deference and respect and opportunities that, that students from more systematically marginalized groups are, are more often denied. And so maybe it's not surprising then that, that because of these sort of unequal structures of, of school and society more generally, students from systematically marginalized groups will usually need more support in uncovering the hidden curriculum of academia. And, and that sort of creates kind of two problems in that for students who come in not knowing the hidden curriculum and who don't have that same entitlement to ask for help, 
the hiddenness of the hidden curriculum can lead to tremendous amounts of self-doubt. I mean, that's what we think of as imposter syndrome, kind of feeling as though everyone else gets it and you don't, and, and maybe you're not good enough or smart enough to be there. And, and that kind of imposter syndrome can be tremendously harmful for students, kind of making it difficult to stay motivated or believe in themselves and their ability to do the work. And in those moments, students really desperately need effective and dedicated mentors to help them through and see the value of their knowledge and, and, and learn the knowledge and skills that they need and that their peers may take for granted. But because of this kind of broken incentive system, because we have so much emphasis on faculty research and not enough, I would argue, on, on mentoring and teaching, faculty have little incentive to be the kinds of mentors who kind of take the time to uncover that hidden curriculum for their students, and especially for the students who who need the most help in that process. And I mean, even on top of that, I mean, the, the mentors who do make that time for students we know are disproportionately scholars who are from groups that have been historically marginalized in academia. So women scholars, scholars of color, LGBTQ scholars, scholars who are first-generation college students. And because of the support that those mentors provide to students, they're often overburdened with requests. And so that this kind of broken incentive structure can not only make it more difficult for, and, and the hidden curriculum that goes along with that can, can make it more difficult not only for students from systematically marginalized groups to succeed, but also more difficult for faculty from systematically marginalized groups to be successful and persist in their own careers as well. The book really uh, empowers students to tackle this from their end. But listening to you, I, I wonder if you have any ideas for how academia can restructure to deal with this. One of the things I've noticed, because I was doing my homework on Twitter before before we started taping, was that some students, their grad school basically devotes an entire seminar first semester to how to do grad school. Um, and when I saw those threads happening, I thought, why doesn't every school do this? My school didn't. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, my my hope was that this book would not just be a resource for individual students, but would be the kind of resource that graduate programs could use to put in place, to to essentially make the hidden curriculum part of the formal curriculum instead. And and of course, I mean, one book, even a a 400-something page book, it turned out a lot longer than I think either myself or my editor were expecting, Um, even a, a big book can't cover the whole hidden curriculum because so much of it is discipline-specific, field-specific, or program-specific, or school-specific. And so there are there's always additional work that has to be done beyond the, that a book can't convey if it's trying to speak to a, to a broad audience. And so, I mean, certainly my hope is that this will start conversations, uh, that this will push departments and, and universities and even whole disciplines to be thinking about how can we make the key knowledge and success uh, in our field or in our program as accessible as possible to as many students as possible and not leave that knowledge dependent on specific advisor relationships. Uh, and so, I mean, I think kind of making the hidden curriculum part of the formal curriculum is a is a key part of that process. At the same time, I think we also need to recognize that even a semester-long course can't cover everything and that there will always be inequalities related to the kinds of mentoring and support that students get. And so, I mean, to that end and to your question about sort of larger systemic changes, I think we also need to be using this moment especially to push for a a fairly substantial change in the structure of incentives in, in academia. I mean, essentially pushing for things like ratcheting down the expectations for faculty research, focusing on quality rather than just quantity, uh, teaching future faculty to be, and, and current faculty to be good teachers and good mentors, and, and certainly rewarding them for doing that work 
counting, especially if you're talking about service that supports the research of students, why not count that as faculty research uh, for tenure promotion, tenure and promotion purposes? Albeit with sort of the, the recognition of how biased things like teaching evaluations can be as a, as a measure of faculty support. I mean, at the same time, though, I think it's important also to recognize, well, why doesn't that happen? Why haven't we seen this uh, shift where we see a, a more valuing of teaching and mentoring over faculty research? And I think that's, for students, it's especially important to understand how the financial structure of, of higher education leads to some of those broken incentives. So, for example, I mean, right now, essentially, the, the way that universities are, are funded over the past 40 years, we've seen a dramatic kind of disinvestment of state and federal government dollars away from uh, public higher education, especially. And so what that means is that essentially schools have to make up the difference themselves. They're pushing the costs onto uh, the colleges and universities have had to kind of raise tuition to make up the difference. But those those dollars still aren't enough. And so, like, as a result, essentially, universities have tried to, to make up the difference in funding wherever they can. And, and one place that they've done that is through kind of grant funding of research. Um, and so, essentially, universities, especially research universities, have become increasingly dependent on research and, and grant funding. And, and certainly some of that money that, that comes in from grant dollars when faculty members apply for money for their research does go to actually doing the research. But a good chunk of it actually goes back to the departments and to the university instead. And so there's an incentive to push faculty to focus as much of their time on research as possible because that directly brings in money for the university in a way that focusing on especially graduate level teaching and mentoring doesn't have those same financial ad advantages for institutions. And so I think we have to think about how if we want to shift the culture of incentives in academia to promote better mentoring and more effective teaching, especially at the graduate level, then we need to be thinking about a, potentially restructuring the way that we fund higher education um, and ensuring that, that universities have the resources that they need to provide high quality teaching and mentoring at all levels, um, even without uh, without having to rely on on grant funding for their for their primary source of support or for um, a primary source of support. There was an interesting article in the Chronicle of Higher Ed this morning, um, written by a Yale professor, who has a a very talented uh, undergrad in English who would like to go on for a graduate degree um, and is finding that it's difficult to advise this student about where to apply because humanities programs are contracting or pausing right now um, because they are the poorest departments. We're not the brightest and um, shiniest as far as um, the numbers that we put out, the dollars that we bring in. But the, the argument, I think, overall of the of the article was, but we're still the bread and butter. You, you don't want a bunch of business graduates who aren't able to write well. You don't, you don't want a lot of pre-med students who haven't really developed that critical higher thinking skills. And that's what we do in humanities, even though we don't bring in the big bucks. Um, and the point of the um, Yale article for me, partly, was that they have this enormous endowment and um, they're allowed to tap into it for what's called a rainy day, and yet the pandemic has not met that threshold. Um, is there actually money at the universities through um, through the endowments that, that could be used to address this, where some departments bring in enough of their own revenue and others need to be funded directly through um, the university's resources itself? 
I mean, I think it doesn't even, I mean, endowments are tricky because they're often earmarked for certain things. Like like a, 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 if you have a named professor, for example, if you are the, the so-and-so professor of English or the so-and-so professor of economics, that means that your entire salary is funded through the endowments. And so it can look like there's a lot of money in there, but a lot of it is already earmarked for certain things. And so it's hard to say specifically that like we should be using endowments for X. I mean, it, especially a place like Yale has far more money in their endowments than um, they need then 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 it's earmarked most likely um but i think it speaks to i think your question gets at a, at a larger question around who sh- who should be responsible for paying the costs of running a university and how should those costs be distributed and increase we we've seen this increasing financialization of of and um sort of um, market-driven model of higher education where universities think that the best way to run an efficient and effective university is to have funding for particular departments or schools funded directly by the money that they bring in in terms of tuition dollars. And what that does is it is it balkanizes universities and it forces units, it forces English to complete to compete with biology and to compete with business um, for students uh, and for funding. And so oftentimes, especially if you have uh, really strong versions of this model, what you end up with is, uh, so for example, the business school might offer credits that count for social science credits or for humanities credits, but students can take all those classes within the business school. And so there's no incentive to ever take classes in the actual English department or the sociology department. And so I mean, that, that, that creates these huge perverse incentives for, for universities and, and departments within them. And it really undervalues the work, as you were saying, that the humanities and the social sciences do to prepare students to be critical thinkers. And so I think really we need to be thinking about what is the value of a college degree? And do we do we value the, the liberal arts model where students are not just being trained for a specific career field the way that businesses and, and future employers might, might think they want them to be, but really that we're making sure that all students have access to rigorous and high quality training in, in a wide variety of fields that can help them to be well-rounded thinkers and be exposed to a variety of ideals. And, and most likely what that means, if we want a strong model of that, is to say, okay, no, it doesn't matter. All funding is essentially kind of centrally distributed, that, that, that it doesn't matter how many students you have in your classes, that we're going to allocate resources to departments based on the needs of those departments and, and that the role that they're playing in, in ensuring the quality education of students. And I mean, I think certainly that's that's more possible if we have a sort of increased government funding model um, where we're investing in higher education as a resource. Um, because I think right now we have this broken system where especially undergraduates, because tuition is so high at so many schools, really do see themselves as consumers and think that their dollars should be going directly to whatever program that they are most interested in, or especially donors. If we're thinking about the donor model, they get to choose where their resources go in terms of supporting different parts of the university. And if we instead have a much more centralized funding model and especially a a public funding model, then that allows us to make those more equitable, in many cases, decisions about where those resources are going to go and how they're going to support kind of the, the breadth of college uh, life and and the breadth of training for students uh, as opposed to just who is the most profitable. And this kind of gets back to what you talk about in the book over and over is that you need a support system. You need to make a network. You need the network to cover all of the aspects of what you're going to need to succeed. And you also talk to students directly in the book and about questions about thinking about where they want to go to grad school and not limiting the geography of where they're willing to go for school 
and also to think strategically about different schools' degrees opening uh, different doors for them professionally. Um, and that kind of comes back to um, another form of gatekeeping. We've been talking about how funding allocations within universities either expand or contract different departments, but it also expands and contracts opportunities for the students and puts more burdens on themselves to fill in their networks. For the students who are listening, who are trying to figure out if now is a time to go to grad school, what would you advise them as far as making those geographical choices right now? And what would you advise them as the most important parts of their network to target once they arrive and get started at school? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key things, it's very easy, again, kind of given this sort of status and market-driven model of higher education for students when they're thinking about grad school to just think about what is the highest ranked program that I can get into. That's that's so often that the, the main factor that students use to drive their decisions. And, and certainly being realistic, going to a higher ranked program on average can increase your chances of especially if you're interested in academic jobs, especially if you're interested in becoming a professor after getting a PhD, going to a highly ranked program, for better or for worse, does have a strong impact on your likelihood of getting a tenure track job, a sort of highly stable, well-paid, or at least moderately well-paid job um, at a research university. And so that is something to, to factor in, is sort of the status of the program. But I would say that even more important than that is the kind of relationships and support that you'll be able to find in that program that you apply to. That, and that, on the one hand, that means someone who can support the kind of research that you're interested in doing. Different departments and programs have different strengths when it comes to uh, topics within a particular area that might be, I mean, maybe you're really interested in medieval history. And so you want to go to a, a, a history department where there is someone who can support you in doing research on medieval history, or maybe you're interested in medical sociology. And so you want to choose a program that has medical sociologists that can help you figure out where your research fits into the, the, the subfield of medical sociology, that you're not sort of left adrift on your own. And so kind of figuring out the strengths of different programs in addition to their rankings becomes a really important part of the calculation to see who will support me in doing the kind of research that I'm interested in without necessarily just duplicating the research of, of the advisor that you end up choosing. At the same time, though, and going a level beyond that, it's also really important to think about the, the kinds of relationships that you'll have with the people that you'll meet there. If you go to a program because it's well known for, say, medical sociology, um, but you just don't fit with the people that are doing the medical sociologists who are doing that research at that particular department, or if they're thinking about it in a way that's very different from the way that you want to approach it research-wise, that just might not be a good fit. And it might make more sense to go to a lower-ranked program or a program in a different part of the country to find someone who is really going to invest in you and your career. And also a place where you as a student will feel supported and, and like part of a community. I mean, I think on the one hand, it's important for grad students, especially students who are thinking about PhD programs, to know that the school that you go to grad school, the, the school where you go to grad school is very unlikely to hire you uh, as a professor when you're finished. Most PhD programs make a point of not, at least especially right after you finish your PhD, um, hiring those students because it just wouldn't be fair to all your colleagues. Uh, and so what that means then is that for most graduate students, if you're getting a PhD and you want especially a tenure track job in academia, you'll probably have to move 
cities and maybe even move states or even across the country or to a different country to be able to find that kind of a job because of how tight the job market is right now. And so for some students, it can make a lot of sense in the short term to go someplace geographically that maybe isn't the best fit for them, isn't the kind of place where they would like to live long term because it will give them a better shot at getting the kind of job that could be in the geographic place or the um the kind of the kind of setting that they want um, for their long-term careers. At the same time, though, I mean, I think it is important for for all of us, and especially for faculty, to know that that for students, I mean, spending, I mean, if they're talking about an MA program, two years, or if you're talking about a PhD, up to six or seven or eight or sometimes even more years in a particular place, that's a that's a long time and a lot of your life to invest um, in getting a degree, and that if you're in a place either geographically or culturally or in terms of, of networks where you're not supported and where you're not happy, that can make it so much more difficult for students to be successful in their careers. And so I think it is completely reasonable for students to make choices about where they go to grad school, not only based on sort of kind of cold, hard logic about long-term future success, but also about where are you going to be able to be successful in the short term, given the kind of support that you'll be able to access in those places. I know for myself, I mean, I had a couple of different options for graduate school, and, and I didn't pick the highest ranked program that I got into. I chose the program that would allow me to live at home with my parents and my younger siblings who were still in high school at the time um, and save some money that way and also be closer to my partner and, and now husband, um, who I was roughly a two and a half hour drive away um, as opposed to potentially a flight away um, instead. And so I, I think those were, and that was a tough decision, but it was a decision that ultimately gave me the support network that I needed to be able to make it through grad school successfully um, and that I'm not sure I would have had um, if I went to if I went somewhere else instead. It sounds like you made a very strong decision to support your life balance and your mental well-being. Um, one thing I'm seeing a lot of on Twitter is students talking about how they're not able to do that um, and that their mental wellness is suffering. Um, you wrote the book prior to the pandemic, and yet I was really struck by on page nine when you spoke to the readers and you said, you're not the only one who's confused or inadequate or alone in grad school. Right now, I think students feel those feelings really profoundly. Um, what advice do you have for them since you are right now a professor during the pandemic? What do you see as working for students and what do you wish students knew they could do to support their well-being right now? Yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, it, I mean, certainly there are things students can do themselves in terms of finding other graduate students and and forming support networks, having social time the way that they would, setting up time to um, even just be on Zoom together and write together the way that they maybe would in their um, grad lounge, for example, if that's where they would normally work, just to have the camaraderie of having someone else that you can just sort of have a side conversation with and just kind of blow off steam while you're kind of working through a problem in your head. Um, that those kinds of creating those kind of informal spaces for students to, to to talk and get support from each other is tremendously important. I mean, I do think that, I, I mean, certainly right now, faculty members have so much on their own plates, especially those of us who are dealing with caregiving responsibilities, um, that it's hard for us to, to do more. But I, I do wish that that universities and programs were thinking more more strategically about how they can reach out 
um, and support students, especially in this deeply isolating time. I mean, so, I mean, for myself, it, it often feels like the opposite, like there's a little bit too much together time with everybody at home and kind of the the, the, the chaos of that at times. Um, but certainly remembering that for many of my grad students that they are in some cases living alone and far from family, living in a new place in some cases, and don't know anyone and feel deeply isolated and, and not surprisingly because of that. And I think the more that we can especially for us as professors, opening up space in our classes and our grad classes for students to just chat and talk about how they're doing, normalizing the struggles that, that everyone and especially grad students who are feeling that isolation right now are, are going through and, and giving students permission to not treat this as, as status quo, business as usual, as semesters, and really give students the space to open up and say, hey, how are you doing right now? And 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 let students know that that's okay to talk about that and to come to us as, as their mentors and as their teachers to to acknowledge those struggles and to feel like they're being heard and understood in those challenges as well. You, you mentioned a few minutes ago that the book is over 400 pages long. And that's actually something that I greatly appreciated about it. It's very validating uh, that it takes this long of a book. <laughs> to uh, uncover the hidden curriculum. And it's very validating that you say, you lay it right out there in the introduction. This is not going to be all of the hidden curriculum. There's going to be more that's department specific. There's going to be more that's uh, university specific. There's going to be more that's culturally specific. Um, but this will get you started. And I love that it's a 400 page book to get you started <laughs> the hidden curriculum. But I'm wondering, as you were laying this out and you were translating it from your blog posts and your Twitter conversations into this book, what surprised you the most in, in pulling everything together and writing this book? Was it that there was more to cover than you could cover? Were there things that you were found yourself writing and you thought, I can't believe that I have to say this. This should never have been hidden. Hmm. I mean, I think probably kind of a thinking big picture, the biggest surprise for me maybe not surprised, but the, the biggest realization for me in writing this was that to, that it that I couldn't just write an advice book, um, that I couldn't just make this a book on sort of how to navigate the hidden curriculum, that I really wanted to, to and, and felt like I had to ground this in helping students understand the forces that that created and maintain this hidden curriculum in in the first place. And, and, and so I think I, that was one of the, the kind of the, the thing that kept me going, especially in, in writing this, especially when it felt like a lot of work, um, was to, to help students not only to feel like they had a tool for navigating this, but to also better understand where it comes from and, and why it's so important not to perpetuate the hidden curriculum as they move forward themselves in their careers, especially for those who are interested in going on to faculty positions. And I think another thing that kept sort of echoing in the back of my mind was sort of the need to help students understand that that we have to take steps to fight sort of the culture of cruelty in academia as well, that it's not just about a hidden curriculum, but oftentimes a, a culture that sees the hidden curriculum and, and the, the, the successful individual navigation of the hidden curriculum as a badge of honor. There's oftentimes a, an assumption among many faculty members that, well, I had I had to struggle through this myself, and so you should too. And I, I think one that often belies the reality that this, the, the, the faculty who were able to persist through that hidden curriculum and be successful probably either came in with a lot of advantages or had some really good mentoring to help them get through it. Um, or and it certainly in some cases may have been able to figure it out themselves, but probably had some legs up along the way. And, and so I think that that kind of, that, that myth of, well, I just did it so you can do it too, is problematic and, and, and 
ignores the huge inequalities in the system that exist. And then on top of that, I think that that kind of a, an assumption perpetuates the harm that is often inflicted on grad students because they have such a limited, a liminal position um, in the structure of academia that they that they don't have the the financial resources to throw or the financial leverage to throw around, um, and they don't have the power or the status of faculty. Um, and so there, there's, it's easy for, for faculty to mistreat graduate students and, and to not give them the support and the, the help that they need. And so I think that helping students to recognize that culture of cruelty, to know that it's not them, um, and that really this is, this is a systemic problem, um, and, but that it's one that we can address um, in the way that we move forward in, in navigating our own grad school experiences and then becoming, for those of us who go the academic route, uh, for those of us who become faculty members as well. I am impressed by the students who are using Twitter to talk about the ways they've experienced the, the culture of cruelty. Um, I know when I experienced certain things, I did internalize it. I did think it was me. And um, I was really proud, even though I don't know this person, of a student who recently posted about an online class she's in for higher ed. And the professor said he wasn't going to teach until um, he gave a big smile for her and the whole class. Mm. And it was interesting, the gendered responses. Um, some, Some of the men definitely had a feminist response, but there were also some who... Um, said things like, well, maybe he was trying to cheer her up. And I thought about that answer and I thought, well, why isn't it okay for her to feel what she feels and show up as cl- in class as she truly is? Why, why, why is it the professor demanding that she cheer up before he starts? I don't understand that response either as uh, it, to me, that's also embedded in the culture of cruelty because it's at its core um, denying a lot of the authenticity we say we want diverse campuses. We say we want a diverse curriculum, and yet you can't even show up uh, having a normal set of feelings. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it gets at this idea that, that, that as much as we like to think of academia as a progressive institution, that it is still very much grounded in its origin as an institution that that served affluent white men. Um, and so, so many of the, the, the cultures and the structures of academia reflect that interest and and that structure, and and I think it it'll take m- more generations of concerted efforts to fight back against that. And also, and I think one of the problems is that the more that the things like the hidden curriculum leave students from systematically marginalized groups doubting themselves and feeling like they're the problem, the less likely those students are to persist because they're not being supported and they're not seeing themselves. Um, they're not they're not being taught to see the, the the larger systemic problems. And if those students are pushed out and if those faculty members are pushed out of academia, that makes it even harder to change the ingra- the, the entrenched culture that we have. And, and that sort of becomes the, the sort of catch twenty two is that the the, the 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 longer the problem persists, the harder it is to to support the people and and the changing demographics of the institution that could help to facilitate um, a change in culture as well. You talk about in the book that it's female professors and professors of color overwhelmingly who are the ones you can go to for your questions or to talk about uh, problems that are happening. Um, And yet when I've interviewed um, professors of color, they talk about being exhausted, about having lines out their door for office hours. Um, 
And yet when I think back on my own academic experience in higher ed, it, it was one particular um, professor who was both female and a person of color who ended up being incredibly pivotal to my ability to stay at grad school. Oh, gosh, absolutely. I mean, the work that especially women faculty members of color are, are doing in academia to support students and to support the, the institutions, to support diversity initiatives, to support the service work of the institution, especially in this moment of, uh, of, of a public health crisis on top of a crisis of white supremacy. I mean, I think we are in this moment where the demands on the faculty members who are doing that that care work that 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 labor of supporting others is that the demands are huge the exhaustion is huge i, I ran a survey at my own university um, before uh, back in december looking asking faculty members and staff members at the university about the challenges that they were facing and and especially women faculty and, and women faculty of color in particular talked about huge amounts of, of burnout and frustration and feeling i mean of the um, of the, the the women in the sample, and especially women who were caregivers for young children, more than half said that they'd thought about leaving their jobs in the past two weeks, and that was over seventy five percent for the women faculty of color um, who had young children. Um, in in terms of the ones that were saying that they had thought about leaving uh, because of the burnout, because of the stress, because of the work that they were doing, not only for their families and for their own careers, but as, but also for their students and for their departments and for their universities. I mean, I think this by not by putting so much of that work on individual faculty members and mentors to to be this support system for students, to to provide that whole hidden curriculum and, and support with navigating that hidden curriculum and helping students deal with imposter syndrome and and the consequences of our unequal structure, that is taking a huge toll on on the people that academia needs the most uh, in, in terms of um, in terms of the, the the work that they are doing to support the institution. And I and I I think that that is one of the really terrible consequences of, of this this hidden curriculum and the unequal systems um, that we have in, in academia more generally. There's so many chapters in the book that help the students from prior to applying you, chapter one is choosing a program. When they get there, chapter two is building your team. Chapter three is deciphering academic jargon, which was a, a chapter that I was especially glad was there and something that again, I see on Twitter where students are saying, what are these abbreviations? Why does everybody seem to know what this word is? And I and I love the honesty that you brought to it when you said, I didn't know what these words were. Um, and that they're also very situational. You can know what a word means and get to that school and they're using it. And it's a while before you catch on that it's completely referring to a different set of information. And looking it up in the dictionary won't help you because that's the definition you've been working with. And in this culture, in this department, it means something completely different. Um, and chapter four is reading and writing about other people's research. And you talk about really one of the things I found most challenging and surprising about grad school, which is we go in normally as voracious readers, and yet we can't really stay in that uh, mindset and survive grad school. We're no longer going to be able to sit down and read uh, a book, even with your book, I had to do what I learned in grad school, which was what we call gutting a book, mm -hmm. which is where you spend a lot of time on the uh, introduction. For me, I also spend a lot of time on the acknowledgments, and I'm always curious about the dedication because I think both of those tell me a lot about the writer themselves. And if you know about the writer, you understand about you know unconscious biases. Um, and then my dad told me 
that if you can memorize the table of contents of a book, you have basically memorized the outline of the book. And that was one of his things he told me to do uh, when I was an undergrad as prep for exams. But this was from a guy who hated to read. And so I didn't realize how valuable that idea was, uh, that shortcut idea was until I got to grad school. And I was learning that you're not going to be able to read all 400 and whatever pages of one book per week, let alone how many books per week it is. And then they advised that we read the entire first page of each chapter, the entire last page of each chapter. And then we go through the paragraphs in between the first page and the last page. We read the topic sentence, and then we only devote our attention to uh, paragraphs that really identify a specific methodological or research question for us. And you continue on this way through the entire book, and then you get to the conclusion, and you read the conclusion in its entirety. And if you have time, you go back to the introduction. Exactly. And that's what that's what we learned for gutting. Um, and you, but you laid out much more um, strategically than that um, on page 109 to 110. You actually give bullet points for the strategies for how students can manage their reading. Can you talk a little bit about why we go in as these readers who love to read and why we're going to have to put that on hold for about five years, yeah. maybe longer? Yeah. And it's so, and that can be such a daunting and frustrating scenario for graduate students to find themselves in when they realize all of a sudden that there just aren't enough hours in the day to do all of the reading that they are expected to do and even that they want to do uh, for class, for their research, uh, just to be up on new developments in their fields. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a huge challenge. And that's part of what drives imposter syndrome is that students feel like they're supposed to be able to read all of these things and know all of these things and be up on all of these new developments, but there just aren't enough hours in the day, especially if we're talking about students who are also taking classes classes and teaching classes and helping with research and, and working with faculty and being good citizens of their departments and their disciplines. I mean, there's just, and certainly the, the same is true of faculty as, as well, that there's just not enough hours in the day. And, and so that can be a, a really tough realization for students who oftentimes came to graduate school because of how much they love to read and think about ideas. And so I think it's important to start to learn to use other people's writing or, or the reading you do for research has uh, to treat it like research in the sense that you are approaching any piece of reading from the perspective of how can this help inform the work that I'm doing either in my teaching or in my research uh, or in my service. And, and so being able to, and so in the, in the book, I sort of lay out some templates around reading to answer almost like specific research questions, things like uh, what is the key argument here? What are the methods or what are the, the, the theoretical tools or the rhetorical tools um, that the writer is using to answer that question that they're coming at this project with? And then who are they in conversation with? How are they refuting other ideas or um, kind of offering a clarification of some prior conversation? How would you cite this um, in research? Or if, or if you were writing about research um, and, and you were saying some people have said or some arguments have been made that, um, kind of like what are the ways that you would actively engage with this piece? Because I think another place where students get bogged down is not just with the reading, but with the note-taking um, as well, that it can be very easy to feel like you have to memorize every key detail or every tiny detail um, of every journal article or book that you read. And that's can take far too long, just given the, the demands on students and faculty members' time. And so kind of going in with a plan, having a template, um, at least for me, having templates and having a place to start when I'm approaching a piece of writing or a book um, becomes particularly helpful because it kind of gives me a, 
um, a to-do list that like, these are the questions I have to answer. And once I'm able to answer these questions, that means I've done enough. Um, unless, and one of the questions in, in the template that I lay out is sort of, is this something that I need to read in detail because it is so close to what I'm hoping to do in my own research um, that I need to be sort of extremely well-versed in all of the ins and outs of this particular piece of research or piece of writing. And so kind of using a triage system to figure out do I can I can I do sort of a, a strategic um, a strategic read where I'm just answering key questions and, and reading this with the goal of answering those questions, or is this a piece where I need to read in full depth um, and make sure that I have a more nuanced understanding of, of what this this piece is contributing to the literature? And so, kind of a couple of different decision points and, and trying to offer templates for students to to kind of demystify that process and also encouraging strongly that students use uh, bibliography software from the minute that they start grad school or as soon as possible if they haven't started that way. I, In my um, a graduate seminar last week, I showed students how to use Zotero. One, it's, it's a free online um, bibliography software program and how easy it is to, one, kind of put readings into it from something like Google Scholar. And then on, on a second level, how easy it is to then, if I'm typing in a Word document, to, to just add that citation and automatically create the bibliography. Starting to use that kind of software has like revolutionized the amount of time that I spend on bibliographies. And, and students, I mean, literally there were, there were jaws dropping, um, kind of seeing how much easier this could be than doing all this by hand and trying to remember um, kind of what that piece of writing was that you read six months ago, or for some of us who are faculty now, six or even more than that years ago, uh, in some cases, to try to figure out what you're supposed to be citing. And so I think there's, there's ways that students can learn to be more strategic and to use some of the tools that are available to help them deal with the completely insurmountable amount of research uh, that exists uh, because certainly fields only keep growing. There's always, the research doesn't ever go away. There's always just more research and there's always just more to read. And so expecting students to read everything just becomes this increasingly impossible task. There's so much in the book I would love to ask you about because you have chapters about doing research, finding funding, writing about your research, publishing and promoting your book, talking about your research, going to conferences, navigating the job market, and then finally balancing teaching, research, service, and life. But in the few minutes we have left, I wonder if you could um, tell us a little bit about chapter five, which is staying on track in your program. And it strikes me that now and in the next few years, really, figuring out how to stay on track in your program and what that means as far as timelines and funding, some things may be going out the window for people. They may be inventing a new way to stay on track on the fly in real time. For people in that situation, could you give us some of your key advice about how they can stay on track in their program and if there is flexibility in that, where they can start looking for it? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I would strongly recommend, especially given the uncertainties and the the challenges of the current moment, is to, as I talk about in, in chapter, I think it's chapter two, I don't always remember the specific numbers, um, kind of finding your advice person. So I talk about kind of building a team of mentors. And, and one of the key people that I say that you should have on your research team is an advice and planning person. And so this is someone that you want to be able to trust with your long-term goals and aspirations. Many students, for example, might enter a PhD program not with the goal of becoming a professor, or maybe they want to be a professor, but at a liberal arts college or a community college instead of at a research, kind of a, a, a research one institution. And depending on your program that you're part of, some faculty members may be more or less supportive of that choice, uh, kind of going into 
the nonprofit world or going into business or going into law, whatever kind of um, outside of academia kind of careers or uh, non-research oriented careers students might be interested in. And so regardless of what your long-term aspirations are, having someone that you trust with those aspirations or at least potential aspirations from the beginning is, is really crucial because that's the person who can help you decide, do I spend this summer um, getting an internship um, at, a, at, a, um, at a think tank or at a business or at a law firm? Um, or do I spend this summer doing research with a faculty member um, or doing research uh, for my own dissertation or my own master's thesis instead? Because there are there's, there's so many strategic decision points about how to invest your time, how to invest your resources. Do you take uh, qualitative or quantitative methods classes if you're in a social science program that offers both? Uh, do you um, apply for this fellowship or that fellowship or do you apply for both? Or if you get two fellowships, how do you choose? But if you're lucky enough, how do you choose between the two of them? Um, do you uh, do you invest your time in applying for grant funding or do you try to do what research you can on a limited budget instead? And so there, there's all of these strategic decisions that, that students have to make as they're navigating grad school. And oftentimes those are those are too discipline and, and program specific for a book like mine to be able to speak to. And that's where having that person who understands the field well enough, who respects the student's goals well enough, um, and who can kind of has the, the, the time and the willingness to help them think through, okay, if this is where you want to get to five or 10 years from now, what are the steps you need to take next year? What are the steps you need to take next month? What are the steps you need to take next week to make sure that you're on track with those goals? Uh, and then I think for students, breaking it down into, okay, if this is where I need to get to, what are the discrete tasks that I need to do um, in order to kind of check off that next big box or, or make it to that next big milestone to get me to where I am? And, and I mean, for me, I think, so having those, check, those checklists becomes really important, but oftentimes students find themselves not sure of even what should go on the checklist. If the checklist is, say, if, if the, the next big item is like, finish your comprehensive exam or your qualifying exam but you're not sure how do I know what to put on the comprehensive exam list or who do I, how do I find a committee or how do I um, decide uh, the number of books versus articles that go on the, on the exam list or how do I, when should I schedule this for and who do I have to talk to? There's so many questions that, that students can come up against. And I think it's really important for students to recognize that when they find themselves at a moment where they are unsure of where to go next, and especially if they find that their unsureness about where to go next is leaving them spinning their wheels and feeling like they're getting behind other students, um, then that's a really good sign that they need to ask for help. Uh, and, and it's oftentimes the, the, what happens with students, I see this all of the time with, with students at, at, at every level of schooling, is that they there's something that they don't know how to do and they're worried about asking for help because they're worried about how they'll be judged for asking that someone might think that they are not smart enough to be there or not hardworking enough to figure it out on their own. And so they don't ask and they keep trying to figure it out on their own. But then that ends up getting them further and further behind. And then the further behind they are, the more embarrassed they feel about telling their professors that actually, yes, I do need help to figure this out. And it can create this spiral that a sort of doubt and shame and embarrassment um, that makes it really hard for, get this, for students to get the support they need to get back on track. And I think in those moments, it is tremendously important for students to remember that, that asking for help is an investment in their own success and potential for success. And that if they are in a graduate program, that program and their advisors and their mentors have taken a chance on them and invested in them because they believe that they can, can, can succeed. And that asking for help is a way to essentially help your program and your mentors to, to, to get a return on their investment in you. 
in the sense that you are g- giving yourself a better shot at success by asking for help and especially in a timely manner and, and hoping at least uh, that, that, that those, whether it's your program director or your advisor or other faculty members that you trust, um, will give you the support that you need or at least point you in the right, right direction to, to find that support that you need to get back on track or to figure out um, what those next steps are in your program. I mean, I think it's, and especially if students find themselves in a position where they aren't getting that support or where people push back and and refuse to give them the support that they need, that that can sometimes be a good indication that, I mean, and sometimes it's because their their advisor is just overburdened with requests. And, and hopefully in that case, the advisor can point them to someone else who can help instead. But in some cases, that means that that maybe the program isn't the best fit for them and that they need to be thinking about where they could get better support, um, whether that's by finding people on social media to connect with or in other departments or reaching out to other grad students um, or finding other support systems uh, in addition to maybe their primary mentor instead. Thank you for that. That's a wonderful um, place to And I wish we could do the rest of the chapters and talk about more of these important themes, but I trust that listeners will get a copy of A Field Guide to Grad School, Uncovering the Hidden Curriculum. We've been talking with Dr. Jessica Calarco about her book and about what you need to know to stay in your program and to find the right one for you. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You're listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.